This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. I approach the question, um, when is war justified, from a kind of different perspective um, than maybe is typical. Um, although, I, you know, what I'll be teaching you is um, certainly the Catholic view, uh, in my judgment at least. My approach to this is to begin by talking about questions of broader questions of governance, because I think too often the question about war in the Catholic uh, perspective focuses on a very narrow conception of the dust war approach as a kind of theory, which I think actually turns out to be quite misleading. We all are aware of the theory. Um, I'm sure all of you are familiar with these categories. Um, you've read them, you've read about them before, you've heard about them. Uh, the, the first category, sometimes called the, uh, the right to go to war, the jus ad bellum, uh, has these three criteria associated with it, right authority, right intentionality, or right intention and just cause. And then there's a second category, the category of the jus in bello, or the, the, the way that you should be fighting in the context of war. Um, and that has two criteria of its own, discrimination, or called the principle of distinction in international law, and proportionality. And the standard approach to these things Think of this as a kind of checklist. You know, you, you, you go up and down the list, making sure that everything falls in, into accord with it and, and maybe do a kind of after the fact judgment of a conflict or, you know, a war, or you do a prior um, uh, evaluation of, of a conflict or the war and, and make a determination about this. But this is, I think, again, a kind of misleading way of understanding things. And even the language, uh, which I put in quotation marks, of just war or, or just war theory, are themselves misleading. Um, just war can sometimes lead people to think um, there's a kind of convergence of the term with holy war, right? That this is now a righteous war. Um, and the language of yus, you know, which is the, the language from which we get notions of right in the, in the Christian tradition, suggests, you know, can, can suggest that notion of a kind of righteous war. Um, but again, I think this is misleading. I think the most important way to think about these things is in terms of politics, um, and in particular, uh, in terms of the Catholic approach to war as not a list, not an exception-making instrument, which is what this way of it can sometimes seem. Some people will understand this approach to be about making exceptions, okay? So we know that we're not supposed to behave in certain ways, generally speaking, but now some massive conflict faces us and we ask ourselves question, is the conflict um, and maybe the morality associated with the conflict worth departing from our typical ways of behaving um, for the sake of some great good? Um, this is, I think, a false way of understanding things. In my view, the just war approach, approach to the ethics of force in the Catholic tradition is best seen as an instrument of peacemaking, okay? Um, what we're describing here is an instrument of peacemaking, not an um, to uh, what we are called to be as Christians, the, the kinds of commandments we're called to follow that Christ specifies in the Beatitudes where he asks his followers to be peacemakers. Um, it's not an exception to uh, the prohibition on murder. Um, instead, it's a kind of specification or description of how political authority should be thinking about ordering force for the sake of common good. Okay, so part of what we're talking about here is different conceptions of politics, right, and governance. 
And within the Christian tradition, as you all are aware, there are different approaches to thinking about um, the, re the relationship of Christians, believers, followers of Christ to the state, right? And the state is often understood in the tradition as the bearer of the sword. So some of you may be familiar with um, this passage. It's, it's the famous article six of something called the Schleitheim Confession from 1527. And if you remember your history, well, you'll understand that this is in the midst of the Reformation, right? The, you know, the Protestant Reformations um, on the continent. And Schleitheim is a group that eventually becomes a sort of Anabaptist or Mennonite traditions, the Amish tradition in the United States. Uh, and their approach to this, of course, is a renunciation of the sword. They will have nothing to do with bearing the sword. If you, but what you see, which I find fascinating about um, this Article 6, is that they understand the sword is a righteous instrument of the state, okay? But it's outside of the perfection of Christ, as they put it, right? It's not for them to wield, but nonetheless, God has given the sword to civil authority, to political authority, and as it says here, for the punishment of the wicked and for their death, right? So it actually serves a purpose from even their perspective, but they are not to be those who are involved in its use, okay? So this is one approach, right, from within the Christian communion to thinking about uh, the problem of force and also how Christians themselves ought to relate to it. Another model, which has roots in the same Reformation, um, is uh, one, you know, like we have a, a particular version of it in the United States, right? And, and this is a kind of deep separation between uh, the church and the state. So it actually shares something in common with the Schleitheim approach. It shares this idea that uh, there ought to be some kind of separation between churches and the state, right? Um, and the state will be involved in certain kinds of activity and the churches in other kinds of activity. But whereas the followers of the Schleitheim Confession, right, the Anabaptists, for instance, understood themselves to always be living on one side of the wall, right? The, the side of the wall where faith is. This approach asks individual Christians to make a kind of duality in their own lives, right? To recognize that sometimes they'll be living as Christians, you know, and that'll be their private worship, their beliefs, um, perhaps their schooling um, in, in some respects, they have private schools but other times to live as members of the state. So as politicians, perhaps in public schools, um, you know, perhaps even as soldiers for our purposes, right? That you can bifurcate your life um, where, where this approach recognizes a bifurcation within society, right? Two kinds of societies that are gonna live side by side, right? Not intermingled. This approach imagines the bifurcation that involves a kind of intermingling. Right, we will be mixed in with the non-Christians, but we will bifurcate our lives um, ourselves. We'll do that for ourselves, okay? And we will sometimes bear the sword, right? We will be willing to bear the sword on behalf of, of the state. So much of this approach, this sort of dualistic approach, traces to St. Augustine. Uh, and this is this conception, as you know, of the two cities, right? Or the city of God and the earthly city. Uh, and Augustine describes this, right, uh, as there being these two communities that are formed around love, right? Uh, it's, it's 
objects of love that will form these communities. And the one community, the city of God, is that community that forms itself around love of God. The other community, the, the earthly community, is one is the one that forms itself around love of self. Uh, and for Augustine, at least as it's described in the city of God in particular moments, these are mutually incompatible, right? These communities are incompatible. They're exclusive of each other. But it doesn't solve the problem of how they relate to each other, okay? So there is a kind of fundamental exclusion of each other in terms of their objects of love, but how they actually relate to each other in the world is where it gets very fascinating, right? And he says this, continuing, um, that the, earth, the, the city of God, the heavenly city, will in fact pull people who are citizens of all the nations into itself, right? And gather them all together as pilgrims. And it does this respectful of their different languages, their different cultures, um, their different laws. And all of these people who are now in this community, this, this city of God who are joined by this love, don't annul, right? Do not abolish um, the, the cultures, the languages, the laws of the places of which they are part, right? They, in essence, understand them better than their fellow uh, um, citizens who are not in the city of God will understand them, but they don't nullify them. They don't extinguish them. They don't abolish them. They, they somehow sort of coordinate their lives around them and within them. And one of the most famous passages of Augustine's In the City of God um, is this famous passage where he talks about judging and judgment. And in my opinion, this is a, a very, like a paradigmatic statement of how the Christian understands him or herself to be involved in the activities of the world. Augustine rather famously, um, as I'm sure you guys all understand, has a, has a deep understanding of the effect of sin on human community and how sin um, is transmitted from person to person, you know, it's transmit, transmitted generationally and how it affects uh, the lived experiences of communities. I'm gonna read this in whole because it's, I find it to be a beautiful and disturbing passage in many ways. Um, but it's it's really, really powerful and important for us as Christians, more or less to wrap our heads around and try to figure out to what extent we get what he's saying here. So he writes, what shall I say of these judgments which men pronounce upon men and which are necessary in communities, whatever outward peace they enjoy? And these are the judgments that men were, and women now will make as judges, right? Men, melancholy and lamentable judgments they are since the judges are men who cannot discern the consciences of those at their bar and are therefore frequently compelled to put innocent witnesses to the torture to ascertain the truth regarding the crimes of other men. Thus the ignorance of the judge frequently involves an innocent person in, in suffering. And what is more unendurable, a thing indeed to be bewailed, and if that were possible, watered with fountains of tears, is this, that when the judge puts the accused to the question that he may not unwittingly put an innocent man to death. The result of this lamentable ignorance is that this very person whom he tortured that he might not condemn him if innocent is condemned to death both, both tortured and innocent. If such darkness shrouds social life, will a wise judge take his seat on the bench or no? Beyond question, Augustine answers, he will. 
For human society, which he thinks it a wickedness to abandon, constrains him and compels him to this duty. So, like I said, this is a kind of stark and powerful passage, right? Um, and you, you, you see him talking about torture and innocence. Um, I don't think we should be misled by the language of torture uh, and innocence and the incapacity of the judge to know the conscience of the, the persons he's inquiring about, right? Um, this is a problem that remains with anybody in judgment. And Augustine describes this, this quandary into which those of us um, who want to engage the world as judges or as perhaps soldiers, right? Um, as politicians, um, as lawyers, as, you know, in, in any sort of worldly aspect, th these are the things that we face. He's describing that, them, these are these are the kinds of problems that we face in obviously typically not so extreme ways, um, but it's very important that he draws it to its extreme. And in these situations, he asks, if there's such darkness uh, that that encompasses our, our social lives, should a Christian, should a wise man, that's who he means by a wise man, should a Christian sit uh, on the bench? And his answer is, Yes, absolutely, right? And as he says, for human society, he, he thinks a wickedness to abandon. It constrains him and it compels him to this duty. And this is a kind of image um, from, a, from a monograph of the judge, you know, sitting, um, you know, in judgment of someone before him who's brought, you know, clearly coerced, right? Brought by force um, before him. This is, uh, you know, an enormous, an enormous problem. But part of his point, of course, is, summed in this, this uh, statement of his, which is quite famous, as there is a commingling of these two cities. They are intermingled, okay, right? We, we really don't know who's in the city of God and who's outside of the city of God. But what we do know is that even those who are members of the city of God, as he says here, also enjoy the peace of Babylon. They too make use of the peace of the earthly city and that they make use of it, right? They can, they can benefit from it is of great importance. They now have a kind of responsibility towards it, right? Much like the responsibility we just saw him embracing in the language of the judge, okay? But what we know, of course, is that when Augustine thinks about these questions, right? He thinks about them in the, in, in the context of certain variables that are important from our faith. One is, as we've described, right, the effect of sin on, on the world that we inhabit, right? So he's very descriptive about the way sin colors social life. There's no, uh, you know, sort of false aspirations in Augustine's explanation of what, what cities will look like, what nation states will look like uh, in the world. Instead, they will be marked by the effects of sin. Um, they, they will be marked by suffering. They'll be marked by ignorance. Um, and, and, and pain. And another consequence of, of this, of course, another variable um, of this is that they will be marked by war. War, he describes as a great evil, and he describes it very uh, descriptively uh, as one involving enormous sufferings. Um, even wars that he calls, what he, that he will refer to as just wars, he understands them to involve great sufferings. Yet another variable is that when he describes our obligations to enter into society, our obligations 
to uh, to to take our you know, our seat at the bench and to sit in judgment. He describes them as also framed by the moral law, right? And one aspect of the moral law is the one that's in front of us on this on this slide, right? Which is um, this is from the Catechism of the Catholic Church: deliberate murder of an innocent person is gravely contrary uh, to the to the dignity of a human being to the golden rule and to the holiness of the creator, right? So it is always wrong uh, to take innocent life. It's always contrary to the, the church's moral teaching, to the moral teaching of the natural law, right? So it's not merely contrary um, to the church's moral teaching. It's, and it's contrary to the word of God, to the gospel. Uh, so all of these things will frame this Catholic perspective on thinking about how to how to use force, how to involve one oneself in in force. The Catechism continues then um, in in a way that I think actually derives to some extent from Augustine by saying the killing that we understand to be a part of war, right? The killing that uh, occurs in legitimate defense, which is an important category itself. The killing that occurs in legitimate defense is not an exception to the prohibition they outline in 2261, right? That we've seen right here, right? So somehow uh, we're understanding that this killing is uh, actually expressive, possibly expressive of the kind of love that we're supposed to have for others. It's not an exception. And this is a point that Pope John Paul II made uh, in his own writings where he said, the prohibition against killing does not sort of sum up the gospel of life to which we are called, right? The, the, the kind of love to which we are called. That sometimes uh, the love to which we are called requires us to act out of defense of those who are threatened. And in those, uh, in those situations, acting in defense of those who are threatened against the threats posed to them can be a kind of positive aspect of the expression of love, as hard as that, you know, can sometimes seem. So the entire, in my judgment, the, the entire apparatus of the just war theory, that's the JWT there, right? The entire, the entire framework of the just war theory that we saw in the very, you know, maybe it was the second or third um, uh, slide that I posted that describes the, the two categories, jus ad bellum and the jus in bello and their criteria really derives from these kinds of presupp presuppositions that we're now discussing, right? First is that Christians share in, make use of, and have obligations toward the peace of their city, right? We, we as I said, we, right, we benefit from this peace, uh, much, much as even the Schleitheim Confession acknowledges, right, that the sword actually does punish transgressors, right? So the sword, the sword of the state, right, the, the, the use of force is actually done on behalf of right judgment, right? Right judgment. And it's done, in other words, by those who possess the authority to make these judgments. And those who possess the authority, right, come under this criterion of right authority. This is not a judgment for me to make. It's not a judgment for private individuals to make. It is for those who have responsibility for the common good. When those who have responsibility for the common good judge, uh, they do so on behalf of the common good. What derives from those good judgments on behalf of the common good become normative for all of the, all of the citizens of the community of which they are a part. Uh, and then it's their responsibility 
uh, to act out on behalf of those things. Okay, so that, that's, that's right authority, right? The right authority limits those who can exercise this power of judgment, right? This, this responsibility of judgment of, of the sort that we saw um, Augustine writing about, right? This grave responsibility and in that responsibility, thereby bind the action of other members of the community towards the judgment as they've seen it. In addition, um, all action, uh, like I said, has to be ordered towards the common good, right? It has to be ordered um, towards this good, components of which um, are justice, right? Uh, that they must be, in, in fact, right action, uh, and peace, ultimately. And this is this is embraced in the criteria of criterion of right intention, right intention in the theory in the you know the just war way of thinking in this framework or apparatus is the principle that orders all uh, all political action towards this good end towards the common good, even towards a common good that is not static right but that is actually open to the possibility that it's inclusive of all those who stand judge judged by the, the, initial, the initial judgment. So it includes not merely those who are defended by the act of force, but it also includes those who are acting, right, against those who are defended. It includes what we might just call for shorthand, the enemy, right? All of those people are members of a moral community from this perspective towards which this political act must be directing itself. Just like when we punish someone, right? When the, when the domestic law, the civil law punishes an individual, it does so on behalf of the community, but it also does so with some regard for the good of he or her who is punished, uh, him or her who is punished by, by the state. Thus, um, you know, following all of this, the morality that binds us must be the same morality Okay, it, there is no departure in this approach from morality, you know, the morality that binds us in our private lives, right? Um, we, we cannot think that the good can be served by departing from the moral law. Uh, and this is a huge issue in, you know, sort of technical just war analysis. You may have seen essays recently on the, on the anniversary of the bombings by the United States of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, where people were appealing to the just war account some to argue against those bombings and some to argue in favor of those bombings, right? In defense of those bombings. I am one of those who argues against them thinking, arguing that that departure from morality, right? The, 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 the intentional decision to kill innocent people is immoral and it cannot therefore be made a right intention, right? It cannot actually serve the end of peace as we understand it, because it's a violation of the moral law. But we can discuss that um, a little bit more, perhaps, um, at the end of this. So the distinction between guilt and innocent is crucial to this account, right, as I just said. And it's in crucial to the, the, the notion of just cause, right? Ultimately, the, the precipitating cause for any conflict is determined precisely in terms of who is responsible for what is happening. Um, is there a wrong done? Right, and that's critical. If there's no wrong done, then you can't sort of prosecute a conflict, right? You can't move towards a war, right? So you have to name it and you have to be able to describe it in a way that is susceptible to rejection, right? Where people can say, no, you're wrong in this judgment about what in fact is the cause. 
there will always be dispute about um, about just cause. That's that's endemic to you know sinful humanity to a conflict of human wills, right? About what is good, but that does not mean that there is not, in fact, um, a, a, an apt judgment, a right judgment to be made here. So just cause is also critical to and derives from um, these these presuppositions we've been discussing. All of this amounts to saying that from within our um, tradition, from within the Catholic tradition for thinking about justice in conflict, right, justice in war, killing is therefore distinguish, distinguishable from murder, right? And it's distinguishable from murder in terms of an apt judgment about some wrong that's been committed, right? Some threat that is now being uh, prosecuted against some victim of that threat. Uh, and this means that it's therefore orderable towards peace when one intervenes on behalf of the victim. This is non-murderous killing uh, in, in these contexts, uh, authorized for the sake of the good of the political community that may be threatened, and also for the good of those who pose the threat. Thus, you know, morality in the conflict must be uh, must abide the laws, uh, you know, or must be must be the same morality as is you know sort of shared. Um, prior to the conflict itself. I just wanted to ask you about the right authority. So yes. who do you think has the right authority to actually carry out any of these actions? So it's, it's a great question, right? Because this is, this is an issue that's deeply contested in our time. Uh, and states cl often claim for themselves this right, right? So we, we know the, the, the conflict or the controversy right now is between states, especially like the United States, right? States that have the, the capacity and the power um, to make these judgments will claim it for themselves. The United States will claim we alone have the authority to make these kinds of judgments and the authority therefore to carry out and prosecute this kind of activity. The other contestant to this is international law, right? International law and international community deeply specifies conditions under which contemporary conflict or use of force will be justified. And it calls into question the rights of states to make these judgments on their own. Um, this is something that is, it's, it's, it's a moving issue. It's a, it's a, it's a growing issue. Uh, so within the tradition, it understands that this, this authority can rest in different places. It's rested in kings, it's rested in dukes, it's rested um, in emperors. Now it, it's rested in presidents, presidents and prime ministers, and it rests to some extent in the uh, Security Council of the United Nations. These are, you know, these are these are moving questions. Pope Francis spoke to this issue a bit um, just two weeks ago in Fratelli Tutti, when he also sort of leaned the tradition into the international law posture with regard to this question. So, great question. It's contested. Part of what's clear is it's in opposition to private justifications for killing, like vendetta type situations when families or tribes would act out of um, their own conceptions of what was right or good based on act, you know, action against them. Uh, it was a kind of codifying of, uh, of those who actually have responsibility for the common good and therefore could act in these ways. In the case of let's say the person that does have the authority decides not to use it 
for a just oh, yeah, cause. Sure. Does it is it okay then for somebody else who is willing to fight for that justice, so to say, to kind of take that authority and then go and actually try and, you know, get that justice? Or is it because that they don't have the right authority, they can't do anything about it? Yeah. So Great, great, great question. Okay, so there's at least two answers to this. The, the, the short answer is yes, if they do not possess the authority, they cannot vindicate their claim, their claim about being uh, unjustly treated or, or, or what have you. So if you could think about some sort of local issue, right? I mean, this happens all the time, right? Where there's been a wrong done, uh, maybe a family believes they were somehow you know, wronged by some other family or a person feels she was wronged by the community. Um, and for whatever reason, the, the public authorities say, we are gonna take a pass on this, right? Where you know, we, we've, we've judged the situation such that we're just gonna take a pass on it. Unfortunately, according to this account and according to our theology, um, we understand that not all justice will be will be given to us on earth, right? As a as a citizen of the city of God, you know that ultimately justice will be done, but it will not always be done, you know, on our schedule, right? So this is this opens up that gap between your justice being vindicated and it not being vindicated, right? So that's the, I mean, that was actually the quick <laughs> that was the quick response, and it took me a little while. Apologies, everybody. Um, a longer answer is, this is also itself part of the controversy, part of the disagreement that I was talking about before, right? So if you think of international relationships, um, there will be times, uh, and there have been times in the recent past, where a state will say, wait a minute, look at this grave injustice that's been done against either this other state or against themselves. And they'll go to the international community and they'll say, grave injustice, this needs to be reversed. Right. And the international community will say either you don't see it right. Right. You know, you're wrong. Um, it's not a grave injustice or, yeah, we get it, it's a grave injustice. But the consequences of responding to it are so large that we're just going to have to, you know, we're going to have to require everybody to stand down. You know, as unfortunate as it is, um, everybody's going to have to stand down. Well, sometimes states, again, if they have the if they have the power, will. Uh, will exercise their sovereignty and say, well, forget you, right? Forget the international community. I mean, the United States does this, right? I mean, we're good at this um, or bad at it, depending on your perspective. Uh, we have the authority to judge in our own uh, case here. We bear the burden anyway of this kind of military action. We're, we'll just do it. We, we came to you in good faith. You made the wrong judgment. Now we're going to prosecute it on our own. Actually, that turned out to be the shorter response. For a Catholic attempting to participate in the city of God and also the city of earth, if we can know with fair certainty that our politicians or generals or maybe other leaders don't possess this right intention or uh, right judgment and make decisions that aren't always ordered towards this ideal peace, what would the justification towards being in the military perhaps be? Uh, personally, this is an important question for me. Uh, I'm in RTC. I wish to be a military chaplain which in grim terms is a force multiplier. Um, so how do I, I guess, what is the framework or best framework for understanding this? Uh, how do I, how can I trust that the U.S. government has this right to rule and uses that with prudence? That, that's a great question, right? Uh, the, the, the posture of our tradition, and, and this may not surprise you, at least in its classic formulation, 
um, was very deferential to political authority. Um, so people like uh, uh, Vittoria asked this question very the, the great Spanish theologian, scholastic theologian Vittoria in the 16th century asked the question you're asking right now, a, a version of it, right? And a version that's obviously infected by being a 16th century version of it. When the individual uh, is confronted with a situation where they are skeptical about the claims made, up, made for them by political authority, the, you know, those in authority, what are they to do? And, and his response was very deferential to political authority. You basically do what you're supposed to do. You know, you, you do what you're told to do, unless uh, your, your knowledge of the situation was so clear, you knew with a kind of certitude they were wrong, right? So you really, you had to bear the burden as the, uh, as the individual of knowing that what they were, what they were judging in the name of peace, um, what they were judging as a wrong and so on was, was mistaken, okay? Otherwise you had to sort of, you know, toe the line, right? Uh, and, and as a ROTC member, right, you've, you've volunteered for this. So you, you've, in, in essence, you know, you've kind of adopted a posture of deference to the authority of those, right, um, uh, who are your, your military commanders. Uh, not, you've not been forced into the situation. So you have already sort of moved yourself into this posture. And it would seem like a conclusion of this would be, well, you need to follow that posture until, again, you have a clear the language we would use now, which Victoria did not use, is a clear conscience that, in fact, your judgment is the correct judgment and their judgment is the wrong one. So merely to, merely to get to the, like, the practicality of it, merely to think they, they're wrong is not enough, right? Um, at least in the classical understanding of this. And I think even still, um, you know, nobody would ever say you should act against your conscience here, but your conscience needs to be grounded, right? You need to be convicted that in fact they are mistaken. Just when you were talking about um, sometimes not carrying out justice in the name of greater good. So for example, um, thinking that if justice was to be carried out, it would cost too much. Um, I was just thinking back to like World War um, Two, when yeah. a lot of people weren't willing to kind of stand up against Hitler when he was taking over other countries. And I believe that was the reason why, because they thought if they'd let him off with a little bit, he just stopped there. But then he kept pushing and that actually did result in, you know, a lot of bad. So do you think they were right in letting him kind of do his thing? Whereas if at the beginning they would have said, right, you're crossing the line now because you're taking over other countries, we will intervene now rather than intervening later. Yeah, great, um, great follow-up question, Kinga. So I, I think there could be a distinct, uh, maybe a distinction between the kinds of questions you're asking, right? So the first, the first question, um, or the way I answered your, your question the first time was along the lines of, sometimes we understand that, that punishment um, or response to an injustice is going to carry with it some grave consequences that might in fact be disproportionate, um, you know, too, too, too large for the sake of the, the pursuit of justice, right? And so we just have to stand down. We have to just sort of, you know, allow 
the injustice to stand, unfortunately, right? Um, that's, that's one kind of situation. Another kind of situation is what you're describing, I think, uh, and I wanna be fair to your question um, in, in this second version, right? Where in the, during the second world war, right? Political leaders, right? The, the, the prime minister of England, um, other political leaders in you know, Austria and so on, were faced with a question about, okay, what is the best way to stop Hitler, right? What is the best way um, to do this, right? And as you know, the, the, the term, right, that became the term, this, you know, sort of applied to Chamberlain, right? And, and the response was a term of appeasement. Let's just let it go, right? We will appease him. This was, this was a mode they thought of giving the man what he wanted in order that he would not move any further, right? That he would, he would then be pleased, you know, appeased, satisfied um, with what he had. That of course proved to be, you know, prudentially an enormous error, right? Um, I can see how these kinds of responses are related, right? That, that sometimes if the injustice, you know, is ongoing, right? Or you have a concern that it might be ongoing, that to, to let it stand becomes a form of appeasement. And I think that maybe that's the force of your question. Um, but I, to your, to, your, to your credit, I was thinking of a situation where something had been done and wasn't necessarily ongoing. And then that, you know, I mean, because the, the, again, these things happen all the time. Uh, I'm sure in Ireland, this happens all the time. Guys are let out of jail, like they are in the States. Um, they may have stolen something. They may have done something that's, you know, contrary to the law. And the, and the state just decides, look, it's overwhelmed by, you know, um, by numbers of prisoners or it's overwhelmed, you know, um, by legal cases. And they just have to let people go. And you just understand, like, look, not every case can be prosecuted. You know, not every uh, not every criminal punished, you know, and 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 that's that's the nature of a finite world. That's the nature of a world where there is sin. Um, but your second version of it is is a powerful question. Uh, and. Clearly, you know, Chamberlain was wrong and other, you know, European leaders who, uh, who were of the same uh, position, right? They were, they were obviously wrong um, in their judgment about uh, prosecute, Hitler's willingness to prosecute a war. I understand that the swords should be used to kind of warn people, to knock you wrong you and to sort of nudge them in the other direction. But what happens if you use the sword to warn people and then they say, oh, yeah, I agree with you, I agree. And then they never repent. They never reform themselves. And then eventually they never believe you when they say, oh, we, we use the sword against you if you do wrong you because it has no credibility anymore. How do you reconcile that with that sure. problem? So part of what you're asking about um, shows like the really challenging um way in which the authority, right, the, the, the right authority, the political authority, their action is justified first in terms of the common good, right? It's, or put differently, first in terms of the community, right? So if a man threatens the, the community by some action, um, the, the, the job of the, of the sword, right, which basically means Right, the coercive power of the state, right? The job of the coercive power of the state or a political authority is to protect the community against that person. Sometimes it can protect people by just threatening. Do, you know, if you don't stop it, we're gonna harm you. We're gonna harm you by you know, incarcerating you. We're gonna harm you by taking 
taking rights away from you, right? And, you know, sometimes in the United States, we're going to harm you by killing you, right? But, but, but sometimes it's just a threat, right, in order to stop them. Sometimes it's more than a threat, right? Sometimes it'll be the incarceration, right, or the denial of rights, you know, even the right to life and so on, right? So, the, so you're right. It, it won't ever just be the threat. But the state's primary concern the, or the, the primary concern of the public authority is not necessarily the person. It's the community. And there will be plenty of times, and we know this from literature and movies and from history, where people are not reformed. They don't repent, as you said. And in essence, that's irrelevant to the state's pursuit of justice. The state, its pursuit of justice is in terms of the community. And if it can do this in a manner that also brings the individual to his or her reform, right, and even a kind of full Christian reform involving repentance, fantastic. Um, but if it can't, um, that's also part of the nature of human sinfulness and finitude. Not all justice can be done now, including the justice that would come from the reform of an, of an individual. So this is quite a particular question, and it, it may not be... Um... Now, I want to tread lightly here, so if I come across as being flippant in the way I phrase this question, I really don't intend that. But an Irishman the... being flippant, I'm not. I've never <laughs> but uh, but no. So so the the concept of just war uh, and even of just self defense, from my limited knowledge, I mean, doesn't, I'm no patristic scholar, but doesn't seem to pop up until Saint Augustine. And Saint Augustine has a quite sort of, uh, shall we say, novel interpretation of the um, discur- the um, cleansing of the temple, where he treats it that our Lord actually used the whip of cords to whip the people out of the temple physically rather than just using it as a threat, uh, which doesn't seem to be present in, in any of the previous church fathers' interpretations of that passage. So my question is, is this, uh, and of course, you know, he's a, a father and a doctor and, and a saint, um, but is that not, you know, a, a departure from the apostolic tradition and the tradition that was passed on to the fathers up to that point? Is that not... You know, a novel departure into a different view on just self-defense and just, just yeah, war. yeah. Um, this that, that's a fantastic question, um, Matthias, and it's a question, as you may know, right, that's been um, dealt with um, from different angles by many, many different scholars. So, you know, for for centuries, really, at this point, um, there is a case that it's a depart. When we say departure, you mean more than that. You mean it's you know not merely departure; it's a kind of um, right. Uh, a reversal of, or, you know, uh, uh, even a, an abuse of, you know, an older patristic or apostolic tradition. So uh, there are people who make that argument, um, as is well known, um, and uh, what, what many of them will say is something along the lines of, from Augustine forward, you have a kind of Christendom model of the morality or ethics of Christianity, um, and that model is a model um, of a kind of uh, apostatizing even, right, of the, of the, of the genuine Christian ethic um, that you find in the older community, you know, and again, the, the apostolic community. Uh, and they'll point to the kinds of arguments you made, they'll point to, um, you know, scripture uh, and, you know, the acts of the apostles for evidence that seems to indicate that this was a peaceful community and peaceful in the sense of a community largely unwilling uh, to, you uh, to support the uh, the empire um, and to support the 
the coercive powers of whatever communities they found themselves in, right? So there is that kind of argument for sure. And, and people, some of these people, um, colleagues of mine even will argue that we're returning to this now, right? Where this is a slow, what we're experiencing now is a slow return, um, even within Catholicism to this posture, right? So Francis, Francis's recent statements in Fratelli Tutti might be themselves part of this trend back to it because we now occupy a post-Christendom situation, right? Um, so Christians are gonna find themselves excluded from certain kinds of uh, state activity and maybe even renouncing some of it. So there is that kind of argument um, for sure. It won't be any surprise since you, you, know, you couched your, you know, your question in terms of you know, worrying about being rude or whatever, that I am not of that view, right? Uh, I, I think there's both evidence in the earlier tradition, um, both of Christians who clearly were soldiers, right? And who were not, uh, who, who were embraced as soldiers by um, the Christian community, were not, you know, told to renounce um, their professions, uh, renounce their activities. And then who I would be among those who argue something like, once, once the Christian community does become involved differently in the state, which is clear, I mean, that's just a fact, right? You know, to the credit of those um, on the other side of this question, that they pointed this out, once they became more involved in the state, um, and the state, of course, you know, political authority, you know, famously converts, um, they now have a different responsibility. They have a different, you know, set of reflections on the way they are and to engage the world um, that cannot depart from the same moral norms, right? Uh, but now will be expressed in different ways. But your, look, your, your question, it, it's a great one. Uh, and you, if you, I don't know if you've read Fratelli Tutti or not, right? Or if you read my essay on Fratelli Tutti, which I just published recently, the short essay, you'll see that Pope Francis in this kind of strange footnote basically says we're we're done with the augustinian thing right um i don't know if you've seen this or not but uh, some of you may have you should definitely look at it I think, I think it's footnote 241 or two um and it, it's strange because it's just unexplained uh and uh it also seems like a problem when you're considering this is not just augustine this is also the entire tradition post-Augustine, at least Western tradition, right? Not the Orthodox Christian tradition, but certainly Aquinas, uh, you know, right? Follows this and Vittoria and Suarez and, you know, and on and on and on. So, uh, so what you say, or what you ask about is, is a, you know, phenomenal question. And it's, uh, you know, it's animated, um, it's launched a thousand essays, let's put it that way, right? I'm, I'm almost 40 years old and you know, I've been to Iraq and I've been in combat, an infantryman specifically engaged in combat. And what I, in, in just reading history, church history, I've always had a difficulty understanding the different standards, I guess, if you want to say, but I'm trying to get more clarification on it. As clerics, they it seems like they of what you would call just war than the rest of the world is is supposed to adhere to meaning you know 
uh, a priest who's who's being attacked by rebel forces in let's say Af- you know Ghana or Af- somewhere in Africa, they will not fight back because they are offering themselves up as a sacrifice, you know, martyrdom for the king, you know, the you know the kingdom of God. Where we are held to a different standard, not being clerics, to where we fight back and we engage in these battles almost me who would you say in right i mean are we supposed to just stand by and, and and be overrun and our lives taken as we offer them up to god are we all supposed to be martyrs in that sense that i i guess that's my my difficulty that i have with understanding the church's position a just war especially now that it's changed you know i've always felt that there there was that there is always a draw or always a calling for us to, to not engage in violence and, and engage in peace. But how do we do that? You know, like the gentleman who spoke earlier that's in ROTC, um, you know, I've gone through ROTC. My wife has gone through ROTC. She's been to Iraq twice. I've been to Iraq once. And, you know, his role is going to be different if he is allowed to be a chaplain. He'll be a non-combatant. Whereas to my wife being an engineer and myself being an infantryman, we are required to fight for a cause that we may not believe in. You know, you know what we were told we were fighting for is not the trueness of what our, our foreign policy wants us to be there engaging in combat. So I guess that's my problem and, and some of the things you're talking about. I don't know how to reconcile it with myself. I, I don't know, you know, like I don't want my children to, to want to be in the army and follow in our footsteps. I would rather them seek peace and love and in and, and, and justice, but not justice when it comes to taking taking lives. I mean, I don't know if that makes sense. I, I think it does. There were a couple of times you broke up a little bit, Ricardo, at least for me on my end. I don't know if that was true for everybody. But uh, th- look, there's a, there's a lot of there's a lot that you said and a lot and, and it's very powerful. Um, and w- one of the one of the points you were making was right, the sort of role responsibilities of those who are priests and religious and those who are not, right? And, and that the church in many different areas of our lives, right, recognizes there are uh, duties and, and privileges that are associated with being in different roles in our faith, right? Uh, and those of us who are laity have certain kinds of privileges and, and responsibilities uh, that are different than those who are who are not laity, right? And and that of that is it's no surprise then that that carries over even to thinking about um, the obligation that you might have as a layperson to defend not merely yourself, right? But you know um, your 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 fellows in your battalion or, or whatever else, right? Um, whereas the the priests and other chaplains in the military might have different responsibilities and different privileges as a consequence of that. So that that was one component of what you said, but it seems like that that was pointing towards at least a couple of the other points you were making, which was, wait a minute, if that that calling is higher, why aren't we all supposed to embrace the higher calling, right? Why shouldn't we all embrace the higher calling here and, and be willing to do and even permitted to do um, what what the priests are permitted to do and willing to do, right? Um, and 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 I take the force of your point. In some ways, it's not unrelated to uh, Matthias's question um, right before you. You know, which is about what are to what are Christians called? Um, 
I make the claim, as you can tell, and I don't want to be coy about this, that to oppose peacemaking to the, the activity of a soldier in a conflict that abides this framework is a mistake. Peace, this being a soldier in a manner that abides this way of looking at things is itself or can be peacemaking. Um, and I'm, I may be wrong about that, but that is my understanding what our church claims, that sometimes the defense of others out of love, and, and I think Pope Francis says this in Fratelli Tutti, sometimes the defense of others out of love requires us to be willing not merely to lay down our own lives, because in some respects that's actually easier, right? Or at least it's notionally easier um, than sometimes uh, being willing to take the life of someone who threatens um, those people, you know? So, so, so partly what you're dealing with is, you know, is, is obviously personal, right? It's personal about you, your wife and, and your children or future children. Um, and I can't, of course, you know, um, solve, you know, the personal component of this for you, but I don't think the church has rejected the notion, um, and I don't think it will reject the notion, that the use of force can sometimes be an activity of love, uh, an activity that is genuinely serving the common good. Thank you. Yeah, you, thank you. Thanks for the great talk, Professor. Um, I know this is probably far broader than the scope of like a one minute answer for questions. But the Crusades generally, and there's a lot about them, you know, we hear them, we hear a lot about them kind of to attack Christianity generally. I've, I've only ever heard of it in a negative context really, but were any of the Crusades wars or was some of them like unjust or just, what's the general kind of take on that? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so, so I, so I think like um, the way the way I, I I typically answer these kinds of questions um, is uh, to say again, I don't I don't like to approach this um, in the in this in that checklist checklist manner, right? You know, did it do this? Did it do that? Right? You know, and so on. Was it was it just or unjust? Right? But. But what I typically do with students is I invite them to read the literature about the Crusades. And I think it's very important for Catholics um, to read that literature. Uh, there's really wonderful histories of the Crusades that have been written, especially over the past 40 years or so. Um, some of them by non-Christian scholars. I mean, the, one of the most famous ones um, is by a Netanyahu, not the Netanyahu, but a, you know, um, uh, an historian with the same last name. I think actually he's related, but uh, what, what, what you find there is obviously much more than the caricature, right? Um, you find in these histories very sympathetic um, understandings of a couple of things. One is the fear um, that was felt by um, at least some of uh, the citizens of Europe, right, about um, the, the threats, the military threats that were being posed in the Middle East. Uh, and, and you see even operative um, as, a as a consequence of that fear, uh, some of the, the notions that we were thinking about, right? The sense that a, a 
there was a just cause here that an unprovoked attack um, had led to the loss of, uh, of land um, that Christians claimed for themselves, understood to be claimed for the Christian community. And that unprovoked attack required um, a response, right? And, and as it was a military attack, it required a military response. What is fascinating too about these, uh, these accounts is that the people, there's a lot of evidence that the, the, the men, the Muslim men who were, um, who were animated to uh, embark on this conflict, you know, in, in these conflicts were men of means, generally speaking, they were typically wealthy. Um, they, were, they were typically men of deep faith and they sacrificed a great deal, uh, including in many cases their own lives, um, for the sake of this endeavor. So all I'm trying to do is add a little bit of color uh, to, and maybe some nuance to what we think of when we hear about the Crusades. Now, all that said, it's quite clear that from our perspective, none of us would think and international law is, you know, is here with us on this. None of us would think that for a purely religious purpose, or what one understands to be a kind of religious purpose, uh, because there's a political purpose involved as well, um, that one could vindicate by force political problems or political injustice, excuse me, religious injustices, religious problems. That that idea uh, has largely been excluded from consideration from Christian reflection um, for a very, very long time. You know, since maybe roughly, you know, the 1600s um, or so, maybe there's some disagreement about this now among the integralists. Um, you know, you might see, some, if you guys are you know, paying any attention to the integralist stuff, um, you may see some people who might say something different about that. But, uh, um, but nowadays, uh, the, the, the grounds for the, the vindication by force um, are really narrower than they once were. And the international law has specified those grounds and, and the, the papacy has also narrowed those grounds over time. And generally speaking, it's, to, you know, it's understood as defense against ongoing aggression um, and uh, not even, in other words, vindication of something that's already happened, right? So if, if somebody, you know, takes Galway, right, you know, and, um, you know, and the, and the conflict is over, um, you know, and Galway is claimed by, let's say, Wales or something, uh, you know, it's not clear that the, that the Pope would say, oh, you could, you know, the Irish can vindicate Galway by means of force. They might, the Pope would probably say, no, only by diplomacy or negotiation or something like that. Once the aggression has stopped, in other words, once the killing has stopped, we're all judging because of the, the uh, conditions of modern warfare that you, one cannot vindicate um, these kinds of claims. I hope that helps a little bit. I do recommend that you, you look to some of the histories of um, the Crusades because there's much more sophistication there than is, I think, typically the case. And you'll see, in some respects, parallels between the way 
the West, and again, the United States in particular, has prosecuted some of its own conflicts um, and in the ways that the Crusades operated. Obviously, one with a much more explicit religious language. The other one with a language that, while not explicitly religious, was very value-laden, right? Um, freedom being the obvious value that is often advanced um, uh, on behalf of Western conflicts. Uh, and, and you'll see some really interesting parallels that might make you a little bit less judgmental about, or make us all a little bit less judgmental about past conflicts and a little bit more judgmental about our own conflicts. That makes sense? Yep. Another very good question. Thank you. Thanks very much. Um, I just wanted to ask if the priest is killed as a martyr because he's not willing to fight someone else, right? He's sacrificing himself. Obviously, that will not be held against him. So that will not be a sin for him in the afterlife. But as a lay person, if you do act in self-defense and you do kill someone, will that still be held against you as a sin? Because you did kill someone. Like you might have, you might have had the right intentions of protecting someone else, but in the end, you still took a life. Yeah. Okay, um, Kinga. Uh, so. Assuming the conditions of your self-defense are the sorts of conditions that we've been describing, no, I mean, that is not sinful behavior. And that is the, uh, you know, that is the important distinction that this whole account is making, right? That there, is, there are different kinds of killing, right? There's killing um, that is murderous. Um, and that's, you know, when you do something, uh, you know, out of um, some sinful intentionality, right? Um, and you you act to take somebody's life intentionally and so on. Um, that would be murderous killing. And then there is killing that is not murderous. Um, and that would be the killing that abides this account that we just described where public authority has said, um, you, you know, this, this fight is uh, a just cause and, uh, and it's for the purpose of, um, uh, of vindicating the common good, of vindicating a community against some some evil threat. Um, in the case of self-defense, as you just described, it'd be quite similar to that. If somebody attacks you unjustly and in the, you know, and you under, you know, defend yourself against that attack and you take their life in the course of, um, of uh, defending yourself, then that could be permissible, not, you know, unsinful behavior. You could also, of course, make the judgment that you will, will die at that person's hands, perhaps out of reasons of faith. Right. Um, so, I mean, you know, it's it's not necessarily sinful. Um, yes, Professor. Sorry. Um, thank you for the talk. Can you hear me? Okay. I can perfectly. Okay. Um, I was just wondering in um, in terms of uh, Pope Francis's kind of views on war and weapons and so on and so forth. Um, what is your opinion and take on, on, on that and also on his fratelli duty? I know you wrote kind of summarizing it yourself, but if you could summarize to us what you kind of, um, what were the key kind of points that we should um, ad address or, and also is it, should we also, uh, I suppose I, he is the Pope, but um should there be also changes now? Would you would you say there would be changes now um, in terms of how 
wars and in general troops and everything um, to go ahead from now on? Just what are your kind of thoughts on all that? Thank you, Helen. Um, great question. Uh, so so what, what we've seen in the church um, since Pope John the XXIII uh, is a real concern about modern warfare, right? Um, and uh, it's a concern that predates nuclear or atomic and nuclear weapons, but it's also obviously exacerbated by the introduction of atomic and nuclear weapons and perhaps also chemical and other kinds of weapons that are just of the sorts that were hardly conceived of in the past, right? So since the very early 20th century, when you had um, the introduction of airplanes and then the use of bombing, right? Bombing of cities, uh, the nature of war, the popes are, are arguing has changed. Um, and, uh, and it's become very, it's become directed against populations, right? Civilian populations. I think one can question that historically, you know, um, Lots of wars were directed against uh, civilian populations in the past, but there is something to be noted about the technological capacity, right, to wipe out tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people in, in very, very little time that the popes are rightly reflecting on. And you see a trend um, up to Pope Francis that is increasingly, uh, in some ways, unwilling uh, to find space for thinking of war as a good means of uh, of the vindication of justice, right? As we described it, as a kind of an expression of the political concern for justice. Uh, so, so I think that that's that's clear. On the other hand, right, and this is I think a point I make in the essay, although I didn't get the space there to sort of dwell on it, he doesn't move away from the idea that sometimes rights will be oppressed by some by somebody and those rights need to be vindicated and the examples that he uses um he, he refers to the shoah right the holocaust um i think maybe he refers to a couple of the re, the genocides of the 20th century uh the late 20th century sometimes uh the the modes that were done to defend those uh or to even reverse them, were the use of force. So it seems to me that he does seem to understand that the use of force in a sinful world remains necessary. One component of what he's doing, which I think is really clear, is he is moving away from states um, and their right to justify conflict, right? He's he obliquely refers to the United States justification of its conflict in Iraq and Afghanistan. He's deeply critical of it. Uh, and I think what you see him doing there is saying this needs to be turned over to the international community, right? This is another instance of something that from the papal perspective is better dealt with at the international level. And I think he, he's convinced that by doing this, it'll reduce recourse to war that, um, and maybe even in particular by the United States uh, because they'll have given over the authority for determining cause and intentionality and so on to an international community. So I, I think that that's where the, the Catholic, the papacy at minimum is pushing um, as we move forward. But I don't think he wants to retract what sometimes is called the right to protect. You may have heard of R2P doctrine, right? In international law. I have my own concerns about R2P, but uh, 
but I, but I think he really wants to maintain that that is still a live option, that, that force may be necessary in order to protect threatened communities. Okay, does that get to, does that get to the different components of your question, Helen? Yeah, thank you. Why do you why do you not agree with the right to protect? <laughs> um, or issues? Yeah. What, what, um, so um, lots of different reasons, I guess. Uh, I probably have a deeper uh, suspicion of human uh, good intentions, uh, you know, uh, a suspicion that to put it in another way, that the, the Pope has a good concern about state, state attempts to justify in their own names, their own activity, right? And the hope is that international or regional um, uh, authorities, you know, in other words, a kind of plurality of authorities will, will check against that self-justification, you know? Um, and I think that that sometimes is true, but I also think um, both in principle and practice, you see very often they end up just as nasty um, as individual states do. You know, so I just have my own suspicions about um, being too given over to the, the idea that regional or international organizations of power are less problematic than our, um, you know, individual ones, you know, and then, and then they become self-justifying. We, we know that the language of humanitarian intervention can become very quickly a just, you know, a kind of different way of justifying Western intervention um, in other societies, you know? So I worry the right to protect can do the same kinds of things. I'm suspicious of human beings, Helen. Let's put it that way, okay? <laughs> Me too. <laughs> well, there you go. We have something in common. Good. Well, thank you for your great question.